Well, hello everyone. I'm your host, Cindy Ketzel. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Nine to Thrive HR. In this podcast, we team up with experts to bring you the best in HR, talent management, and business strategy. Speaking of teaming up with experts, we want to hear from you. If you do have a specific topic you'd be interested in suggesting, please email us at podcast with an S there at hci.org. I am so delighted today to introduce you all to Jake Wood. Jake is the founder and CEO of Groundswell, a software company that enables companies to make philanthropy an employee benefit. Groundswell launched in 2021 after raising 15 million in venture capital led by Google Ventures. Prior to launching Groundswell, Jake served as the founder and CEO of Team Rubicon, a disaster response organization that is widely considered one of America's leading nonprofit organizations. And if you all have not heard of that, look it up, look it up. Jake is also a Marine Corps vet with combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, a twice published author, a frequent contributor in the media, and a graduate of the University of Wisconsin. Welcome, welcome, Jake. Wow, well, thanks for having me. Go Badgers. Yeah, <laughs> we're so excited to have you with us. Yes, go Badgers. Um, first and foremost, you all, I just wanted to start off here saying we are so fortunate to have Jake on with us here as we enter into a week of honoring veterans and victims of war. And so I want to say thank you to Jake and to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for your service. Of course. It was a, it was a pleasure and honor to serve. I know, Jake, I've read so much about you, and I know we're going to hear a little bit about today that how much your time there and your your life experiences, really, but your time there in the military has certainly led to a lot of what you've done today. So I, I'd love to start there if that's okay with you. Sure. So what has that transition from military service to leading your that nonprofit, um, Team Rubicon, to now founding this tech startup of Groundswell been like for you? Yeah, you know, uh, it was almost laughable when I was out there pitching VCs for Groundswell and they'd ask, you know, hey, um, why are you the right person to invest in to build a fintech company? And I have to say, you know, kind of chuckle and say, well, it's been a straight line from you know, being a sniper to running a nonprofit to running a venture-backed uh, fintech company. But, you know, listen, I, I think um, one of the interesting things about transitioning out of the military, particularly for combat veterans, is I'm not sure that that transition ever really ends. So I was more fortunate than most. I, I had um, an incredible support system and, and network around me. I was fortunate to land on my feet financially. But, you know, it was, uh, you know, it has not always been easy. And, you know, part of that was certainly the experiences and memories that follow you from your time in service. I, I, I had two very hard combat tours during the two bloodiest years of the war. And, and you know, that's been somewhat challenging at times from maybe an emotional standpoint. But I think, you know, I feel so blessed to have had the privilege of serving my country and serving alongside really incredible men and women. And when I think about some of the success that I've had over the 15 years since I've been out, I owe so much of it to, you know, what the Marine Corps taught me, what my hardship overseas taught me, what the amazing leaders I got to learn from taught me. And, 
I have no doubt that I would not be who I am and would not have accomplished any of the things I've accomplished had it not been for that experience. So um, it's been a journey, I guess, uh, but uh, certainly not one that I regret. Absolutely. So I want to share a little bit too here, Jake. Um, When I was introduced to you, I was sharing with our mutual connection here and I said, you know, I'm so excited to have you on because of my grad school thesis. So I went to Xavier University. You may have heard of their basketball team. They've got a pretty good basketball team. Mm -hmm. And so all these years ago, you know, I had done my thesis on exactly what you are talking about. And my research team and I, we all believed in what really what you're saying, that those experiences, not only just from life, but also that military life really translates into organizations and really into leadership, which is really what we're talking about here. So when I heard you were going to be on with us, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I studied all those years ago. So I was really excited about that. Yeah. So I know what you've taken away from your military service can guide us, right, in our profit, our not-for-profit, our nonprofit, global, et cetera, et cetera, organizations. So, you know, that's amazing. So tell me then, what would you say? What leadership skills do you think have been most important or translated most clearly from your time in the military to now as a people leader? Yeah. Well, it's funny. One of the things that the Marine Corps drills into Marines, um, even at the most junior level, is the importance of leadership. And I, I think one of the unique things that the Marine Corps does is it, it teaches Marines to first lead themselves. You know, How do you develop a sense of personal accountability and integrity and dependability that uh, allows you to show up and instill confidence in your peers that you will you know, lead yourself and, and get the job done. And then very early, the Marine Corps is just so great at empowering junior leaders to take on very challenging tasks and to tackle those tasks with this level of autonomy and empowerment that I think a lot of people fail to understand. I think people, they think about the military and they think about this top-down hierarchical command and control execution. And, you know, there's certainly, um, there's obviously ranks in the military. There's obviously what we refer to as the chain of command. And certainly missions are prioritized at the top and driven down. But I think, again, I think people fail to realize that execution is done in such an autonomous and agile manner that what the Marine Corps at least does a really good job of is creating entrepreneurs. And and I think that surprises people to hear because, you know, what is entrepreneurship? It is navigating a high stakes environment with limited information, with a ton of friction uh, present, you know, and that could be uh, a funding environment. It could be a competitive environment. It could be, could be anything. And to to kind of navigate that ambiguity, that uncertainty with confidence and to consistently win in that environment. And that's that's what Marines on the battlefield do. So when people say, like, how did you learn how to become an entrepreneur? I'm like, well, I went to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh And people just kind of like slap their foreheads and say, I don't get it. Yep. So then what do you see? I know you've got Team Rubicon and I've read up a lot about that. And again, for our listeners, if you haven't heard about Team Rubicon, 
Google it. Google it for Jake and I. It's a really amazing mission. Um, so what do you see then, though, going back to how I started here? Do you have workforce members that maybe have joined Team Rubicon or even those who maybe have followed you that are able to say, hey, this guy gets it. We can translate what we know from the military and entrepreneurial skill set into leadership or even just hearing your message and being more confident to move into corporate space or whatever space that might be, what are you seeing that transition look like? Well, you know, I think that um, you know, as I transitioned from the Marine Corps and had to reinvent myself as a leader, you know, certainly I, I think I, I gained a foundation for my time in the Marines. But if you're not constantly reinventing yourself as a leader, if you're not constantly seeking to improve and to learn, then, you know, not only are you failing yourself, but you're failing the people that you lead. Um, I think that there were things that I might have learned in the Marines that I maybe didn't really understand or that hadn't fully manifested themselves in me as a leader. And so a few things. One of the leadership traits that I think I did a good job of developing in that transition was this sense of vulnerability and humility. And it was almost a requirement because I had no experience when we started Team Rubicon. And for the listeners out there who, who aren't familiar with the story, I started Team Rubicon by accident 60 days after getting out of the Marine Corps. I mean, the, the literal truth of the story. And so as we're, as we're building this thing, if I had pretended like I knew what the heck I was doing, people would have seen straight through that ruse. And so I had no choice but to acknowledge what I didn't know, um, to go and hire incredible people that could fill my gaps, to constantly learn and demonstrate to the people that I was leading that I was learning, but to really have this, you know, to sum it up, this humility um, where, you know, I could walk into a room of people that were on my team who were looking to me as a CEO and say, hey, I don't know the answer. Let's figure it out. And I, I say that I think I learned part of that, at least in the Marine Corps, because I, I was lucky to have some great leaders that I worked with. And I, I'll use an example. Uh, you know, when I was on a sniper team in Afghanistan, just really complicated environment in a complicated mission, you know, where over the course of seven months, we're out there, you know, well beyond friendly lines, with limited resources and just super high danger every day. And. I had this incredible team leader. His name was Sean Beidler. He was a sergeant. Um, it was his third tour. We'd gotten to know each other pretty well. And he was never afraid to pull our small team together, you know, in a thorny situation and say, guys, I, I'm not quite sure what the answer here is, but, you know, we're going to figure this out together. And it wasn't that he was abdicating responsibility or giving up his, his leadership authority. It was he was bringing us on the journey with him in a way that never left us thinking that he didn't know what was going on because you see, he would be willingly acknowledge it. So I, I think it was just one of those, those mental models that I, that yeah. I had shaped that was just really powerful for me. Yeah. So you mentioned vulnerability and humility and that great story about your team leader, Sean. And I just wonder, what are your thoughts on this? Because I sometimes get caught up in this sometimes too. If I have a task to complete, where is that balance of delegate versus, hey, go out, 
figure out the answer, come back to me, let's have a discussion about that, and, you know, empower and build those strengths. Where do you find that balance? I don't think there's a, a hard and fast rule there, but, you know, it's funny. I took an economics class in college, and I think I slept through most of it, but there's one or two little nuggets that I that always kind of, like, bounce around in my head, and, and one of them was this concept of highest and best use, Right. An economy that's operating efficiently is figuring out the highest and best use of the resources that it has at its disposal. And so as a leader, I think you have to take that same approach. What's the highest and best use of your time and the time of your people? And certainly, I think that we should all aspire to delegate. That typically results in you know a more effective organization. There are going to be times when there's something that only you are uniquely able to do. And you just have to know what those things are. You never want to, you know, create this, this hero status where, you know, if you are unavailable to do that thing, the organization falls apart, but slowly chipping away at those things and bringing on people who can do those same things, at least, you know, approaching the level that you can is, is really that has to be the goal of any leader. Absolutely. And ultimately what you're doing is you're building future leaders. Yeah. And, and again, going, we keep going back to the Marines, but that was just one of these really incredible things that, that the Marine Corps drives home. It's, it's know, know your job, first and foremost. Know the job of the person alongside you, below you, and above you. And, you know, the stakes are really high on the battlefield. And, you know, if somebody goes down, you, you can't have a gap in that capability. And this, you know, this hit home for me. My, my squad leader on my first tour in Iraq um, was wounded and you know, it was next man up. Um, and I had to know what his job was because he got sent home, you know, he was wounded pretty severely. And so, yep. you know, you just have to build that same uh, resilience is ultimately yep. what it is within your organization. Wow. So speaking of all these words, Jake, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today is your view on empathy in the workplace. Really, even all of these terms that you're using, vulnerability, humility, being the next in line, knowing that a person is able to take charge when you need them to, and moving forward. I kind of find with this disruption that we've seen over the last couple of years, I think more and more organizations are embracing this leadership language. I feel like we're going through a shift and so words like empathy, vulnerability, humility are becoming a normal cadence for organizations. And I know both Team Rubicon, Groundswell are organizations that have really centered around a greater purpose, which I think encompasses all of these terms. So tell me about your focus on purpose being important for those internal teams. Yeah. Well, I mean, before getting to purpose, I think you're right. I think these words, you know, vulnerability, humility, empathy have become more commonplace in leadership conversations. And it's, it's an interesting shift because I think most people would say that it's a softer form of leadership. I was at an event uh, two weeks ago for the, the launch of a book uh, by Julia Borstein. Um, and the book is uh, When Women Lead. And, you know, part of the thesis of this book is that these are often traits that are associated with women and the rise of more women in positions of power and leadership within companies, I think, could probably correspond to the rise of uh, these leadership traits. And anyway, I find it I find it fascinating because I think a lot of people are often surprised to hear 
you know, a gritty Marine sergeant, um, veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan speak frequently about vulnerability and empathy because they're not associated with traditional, That's right. um, notions of manhood. And, yep. and I, I just, yeah, just, I always chuckle uh, at those yeah. things. Um, but purpose I think is, is so powerful and, and ultimately helps unlock those things that we're discussing. I, I've been very fortunate that I've been a part of purposeful organizations, you know, whether it was serving my country, you know, responding to disasters or building a platform to democratize philanthropy. They've always been vision and mission driven and have been able to not just inspire me to a higher purpose, but, you know, my colleagues. And that's, it's so helpful. I think one of the things when people talk about that military transition that we led the conversation with. For me, I often frame it in terms of the void of purpose that many veterans feel when they come home. And I, I think often that purpose void and things like PTSD get conflated. And, and I think that's unfortunate because you can much more easily fill a void of purpose than you can heal the mental wounds of war. And so I always caution people from thinking that a desire for a purposeful life is, you know, reserved for, you know, veterans coming home or some other like small slice of, of the population. There's nothing more universal to humanity than a need for purpose. And I think if leaders better realized that and could better frame the work that they're doing in a purposeful way, they would get so much more out of their employees and their employees would get so much more out of their work. You know, morale would increase, engagement would increase, retention would improve. So I just think it's this missed opportunity for leaders today. So to build on that, can you think of in your experience, whether it's with Team Rubicon or even now in the nearly infancy, or I don't know, I guess maybe you're in adolescence now with Groundswell, where you've seen that kind of come to life within your organizations? Well, I think the easiest way to inspire shared purpose is through really effective storytelling. And the way I frame it for people is that human beings have told stories since the beginning of time. So like, you know, it's literally since we invented the human language, since we invented campfires, you know, we've sat around campfires and told stories. We tell them to make each other laugh, to explain things we don't know, to you know, to share our, our history. And the result of that is that I believe every person aspires to be a part of a story, right? And whether they admit it or not, you know, they think about their life as a, a story. And, and so ultimately, organizations are also nothing but a story. They've got a, a founding, they've got that first chapter, they've got a vision, which is the conclusion of that story. There's everything in between. And there's, you know, the characters, the plot twists, the antagonists, you know, the, all of those things. And so as leaders, if you want to get the most out of your people, you'll help them understand how they're an important part of that story. It's got to be a story worth being a part of. But if you treat people like some inconsequential character in that story, they're going to act like an inconsequential character. They're going to show up to work. They're going to put in inconsequential work, you know, but if you convince them that they're a hero in that story, that they're the protagonist in the chapter where they present and, you know, every day uh, treat them that way, they're going to show up and they're going to put in 
you know, hero level work. Um, Cause there will be this shared purpose. Yeah. And you said that like my brain just goes to higher engagement. Yeah. When people feel that part of what they're doing, I mean, we spend just as much money, money, ha, perhaps money, but just as much time (laughs) in work mode as we do in family and other mode. So I want it all to feel purposeful and valuable to me. So if I do just feel like a character in someone else's story, I don't know how engaged I'm going to be, which makes me think of this question. Are you familiar or have you heard of, I'm sure you have this term right now called quiet, quiet quitting. I think quiet that's- quitting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's controversial. It is. Some people seem to be applauding it, which is, which I think I get the perspective on that, too. but it just- just makes me scratch my head. How did we get here? You know, how did we get here? It's funny that you said that I, you know, as I was getting ready to hop on with you today, um, I was communicating with a friend that I hadn't seen for a while and, and sharing with her, you know, I have my own business. And for me during the pandemic, it was a really scary time. And I feel like my purpose has gotten really wide and big and probably too wide and too big. Um, But her response to me was, well, I don't know what's better. I'm in that quiet quitting group. And I mean, here's what I was thinking when she said that. I'm like, you're not wrong. Um, I get that, right? So she's going into work. She's doing her job, but when she leaves, she leaves and she's only doing what is required of her. And so I 100% get that perspective. But on the other hand, to your point, Jake, of talking about purpose. So, you know, I guess to me, the other side of that is she's such a valuable person and so skilled and talented. And I hate to see. Ah, that muscle relax, if you will, right? To just yeah. feel like I'm just going in, doing my job and leaving. We're just at a barely engaged level. Yeah. And, and listen, I, I think it's the natural outcome when a work relationship becomes purely transactional. And when it's purely transactional, why would you ever give more than right. what you receive in return? Uh, it's perfectly logical in that way. I don't think work has to be purely transactional. And I think it's, you know, you mentioned people spend more time, more of their waking lives at work than with their family. Uh, It'd be great if it didn't have to be that way, but the real world uh, beckons, right? And um, it just, man, I think every leader should aspire to make that work as, again, purposeful and inspiring and engaging as possible. And for it to just fall into this transactional nature, I think is robbing those yep. employees of, of real joy and, of course, robbing then the company of real opportunity. That's exactly what I was going to say. We're missing on both ends. And and at the same time, I think that, you know, throughout our careers, we've probably ebbed and flowed through what is now being coined quiet quitting, right? As we are with organizations and maybe we've got something going on in our personal lives. So we've stepped back a little bit and then we rejoin and that, you know, I do think there's the ebb and flow, but you're right. I think that we're losing out considering that it's such a big term right now and everybody is talking about it. I just feel like we are seeing more and more folks in this transactional position, as you mentioned, what a great way to talk about that using that language to talk about quiet quitting and not being able to find their purpose. Exactly. 
I, I think the real scary thing is I've spoken to people who indicate that they don't know that they ever want to find purposeful work again, right? Like they actually have found themselves perfectly happy in a transactional relationship yeah. because they're afraid of getting sucked back in. And, I, and listen, I mean, if that's how you want to provide for yourself, like at least you're being honest with yourself and that's good. But I just wonder what the long-term consequences of that are, not just economically, but even the mental health of people. It could go either way, right? It could lead to a much more fulfilled society with less stress and all some of the other yokes that uh, jobs can place on people. But I don't know. I think work can provide purpose and I'm afraid of what happens when we lose that. When it disappears. Well, and as you were just talking, you know, the other thought that I have, you know, I'm hoping to have somebody on the podcast in early 2023 to talk about burnout. Mm -hmm. While you're sharing the other thing that I thought of is maybe some of these folks who are in that quiet quitting. And to be fair, I haven't read a ton about it. Um, they're also just tired right? Yeah. It's been a rough couple of years for a lot of people. And 100%. so how do we find, you know, how do we inspire? How do we find the purpose once again? And maybe what people are going to find is where I was and where I am now, my purpose is not the same. And maybe that's why they're entering into this phase of, I need to go where my purpose makes sense. Yeah. But I think people are tired. I mean, it's been a long road. I don't know for you. Has it, I mean, how are you feeling after these last couple of years? Well, I should say that, but you also have really amazing things going on for you. Yeah. One of the things I observed during COVID was people felt like they lost their agency. They lost the ability to control their lives because their lives were controlled by the pandemic. And I think that that was greatly exacerbated when the pandemic then led the government to control elements of their lives that they maybe hadn't controlled before. But I think that um, it's, it's very emotionally draining when people feel like they don't have control. And so I think that that was a huge contributing factor. Um, first COVID, then some of the government interventions took away their agency. And of course, then on top of all the other things. But that was one of the things that that I pointed to, you know, in 2020 as I think a contributing factor to some of that angst that people were feeling. Um, you know, for me, I, I was lucky. Team Rubicon, I was still the CEO. We did incredible work in the midst of COVID to help communities navigate through it. And it ranged from, you know, we managed much of the healthcare system for Navajo Nation over the course of about nine months. We distributed you know, almost 2 million vaccinations, 55 million pounds of food and all sorts of great things. So I had some sense of agency. I was able yes. to, to get in the fight and, and help it head on. Not everybody had that luxury. That's right. That's right. You had purpose. Yeah, that's a, a great way to summarize it. And that's, of course, how Team Rubicon got started, of course. Um, but yeah, you had purpose. So Team Rubicon, and then we've moved into Groundswell. And we're talking about all of this language and how, you know, we do feel there's been somewhat of a shift in organizations. And one of the things that I thought of, Jake, when I was reading more about you and reading about this, um, what you're doing with Groundswell, I think the statement that came to me 
Um, and I am happy to talk about groundswell. I'm more than happy to give you some floor to talk about what groundswell is. I, I mean, I would tell it in the language that I'm telling my friends and family about it. I want to, I want to hear how that sounds. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I will. I will. So for all of you out there, this is how I've explained what Jake is doing. Um, and so, you know, I started as a social worker and then moved into corporate America and one of the things that I noticed is when I moved into that world long ago um, is the philanthropy or the giving was really often centered on what, where or what the organization wanted to give towards. But I always thought, what if that's not what I or other folks wanted to give towards? So meanwhile, you know, of course, I've always appreciated the giving, all of it. Um, but when I talk to my family and friends about Groundswell, I think this is really where I landed. It's this really cool technology that allows employees to be able to give, and it takes the hard work out of it for the organization. So employees can give where it matters to them. And ultimately, it takes that tough, challenging stuff around taxes or compensation, all that stuff, all of those pieces that are probably the most challenging for organizations. And so basically my bottom line is your technology has helped to take some of that hard work away. So to take me to the top of where I started um, before I gave my explanation, my statement about what you're doing with Groundswall, isn't this the ultimate form of empathy to our employees to be able to provide a choice of how they want to give? Yeah, I think that's a powerful way of framing it. Um, you know, it's really, at the end of the day, acknowledging that your employees have really diverse perspectives on the world. Those perspectives are informed by their life experience. And, you know, it could be how they grew up as a certain race, it could be how they grew up as a certain gender or as a certain sexuality or religion or economic status. Um, but they look at the world through unique lenses. And so you are, you're, you're demonstrating that empathy by respecting those diverse perspectives and being willing to invest in those perspectives. And that's really what we're doing. You know, we're trying to democratize corporate philanthropy, empower employees to, to give to what matters most to them, um, boy, I, but I really like how you frame that through empathy. Mm. You can coin it if you would like. I'm, I'm going to take it. I'm going to trademark it. <laughs> Just make sure. I was I was on this podcast, Nine to Thrive. There you and, go. <laughs> um, yeah, it's an impressive feat what you all are doing. And again, I'm not on that side of the HR world, meaning the behind the scenes side. So I can certainly appreciate what this technology is doing for organizations to allow them to be able to do this. I think that's also a key, right? Because I think organizations want to be able to do something like this, but how do we do it? Absolutely. And I think, you know, organizations are bombarded right now with software solutions, some of them, you know, more expensive and more complex. And we built this with kind of that program administrator in mind. You know, how do you make this as simple as possible where a company can set up a giving program for their employees and not have to manage a mountain of administrative tasks in the execution. Like, let's just get out of the way of doing good. You That's know, right. let's just and unleash it for our people. That, that was the philosophy. It. Yeah. And allow it to happen. Yeah. yeah. Organically. Yeah. 
I love it. Yes, I love this. I love this. I've loved our conversation. Thank you. Um, so I wanted, I, I, I ran this by you, but I wanted to kind of uh, wrap up a little bit by just sharing with all of the listeners a little bit about what I have learned from you. And we've shared a little bit here on the podcast as well. So Jake has led a leading nonprofit. He has played Big Ten college ball. Do I have that right? Because I am not a college football player, but University of Wisconsin is Big Ten, correct? Big Ten. Yep, Big Ten. That's okay. right. Okay. I know. I know that could be a whole nother podcast because I know you are you. You're kind of iffy on how that experience was for you, but <laughs> but you did it. Yeah. Um, yep. Played Big Ten college ball, joined the military, received the coveted Pat Tillman Award, which I know was so special to you. Um, interviewed by icons, which uh, which for me now, I feel like I'm in six degrees of separation with people that I would only aspire to have a conversation with. But here's what I learned about you, Jake. And this just made me giggle the most. Uh, the biggest uh, award that I saw here, as I learned a little bit more about you, was for being the most okayest dad. And you received that award in 2019. What do you have to say for yourself about that? <laughs> hey, for all you listeners out there, if I can do it, so can you. <laughs> That's priceless. But you said at the time, you just had one little kiddo. You've got two little kiddos now, so you're aiming. Aiming, for, yeah, aiming to make a comeback. May, aiming to make a comeback. I love it. Do you ha, do you at least have a mug or something? I've got a t-shirt. Commemorative t-shirt. Perfect. Okay. At least you've got something. You've got something. So that when the next, uh, whatever the next dad award is, you can also commemorate that one too. I love it. Uh, me too. I know. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Jake. We've enjoyed having you on. It's been such a pleasure to get to know a little bit more about you and all that you've done and what you really stand for um, and stand behind really with your teams and, and the organizations that you've been a part of. So thank you so much for being a part of Nine to Thrive today. Of course, Cindy. Thanks for having me on and for such a, a thoughtful conversation. Yep, of course. All right, Nine to Thrive listeners, uh, again, just shoot us an email at podcasts at hci.org if you have any suggestions for topics. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating. Your rating helps other professionals and talent-minded people discover our program. For Nine to Thrive HR and all of us here at HCI, and especially thanks to Jake Wood, we appreciate you all for tuning in. Make it a great day, everyone.